Ladies and gentlemen, how do? Long before the term keyboard warrior was used to sarcastically describe someone hiding behind their computer screen, it may have been used to describe a handful of artists committed to wringing music out of synthesizers. A wide array of keyboards and the synthetic sounds they generate either acoustically, digitally, or via complex analog programming have shaped rock and roll for more than 70 years. Thompson, and on this episode of the podcast, we're all about the keyboards. I'm thrilled to present an in-depth conversation with an old friend, Ronnie Martin, that spans his entire career, right up to his current work as a pastor in Ohio. Ronnie's latest project, billed as a solo album instead of under his legendary Joy Electric moniker, is simply stunning. on the jukebox we'll jump in the wayback machine and take a listen to the technos a uk group that used keyboards in imaginative and progressive ways in the late 70s and 1980s steve fairney and his wife bev were on the vanguard of the art scene in london's west end and they put out some amazing music we'll spin several of the projects by the fairneys and their circle of insurgent friends Keyboards are all warming up, and we'll set them off after we take care of a little bit of housekeeping. Hey there, I'm Mark Feldbush from Columbus, Ohio. I'm a Patreon backer of the True Tunes podcast. I've also left a rating and review of the show at Apple Podcasts. Really wasn't that hard. It didn't cost me anything. But this show means a heck of a lot to me. And I know that reviews and ratings make a big difference when it comes to how and if others discover these conversations. Would you take a few minutes, maybe even while you're listening, if you're not driving, of course, to leave a rating and a review? Even if you don't listen on Apple Podcasts, the reviews posted there push out the podcast to platforms all around the world. Oh, and take some time to tell your friends about the show. Let's drive the numbers up together. Thanks.
Ronnie Martin made his recording debut back in the late 80s with his brother Jason in the indie band Morella's Forest. Later, the Martin brothers emerged as dance house children for a couple of albums before Jason launched the shoegaze alternative band Starflyer 59 and Ronnie became Joy Electric, a project committed to analog synthesizers, sugar pop melodies, and unabashedly gospel-oriented lyrics. We are children of the Lord. Who cares? We do. We don't care what you think. Our lives aren't for the taking. When our last fails, we still believe in Him. Yeah! Time passes and with time we grow stronger. We're in this for the long run. Don't you know it's all the way? The battle is the new album, From the Womb of the Morning, the Dew of Your Youth Will Be Yours, is a shimmering example of Martin's incredible pop instincts, biblical imagery, and of course, the analog synthesizer sound. In addition to his commitment to musical artistry, Martin is serving as the pastor of Substance Church in Ashland, Ohio. We've known each other for over 30 years, but hadn't spoken in a long time prior to this conversation. So, let's head into the virtual Truth Tunes interview suite for a completely analog conversation with the innovative, imaginative, and relentlessly joyful Ronnie Martin. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Ronnie Martin, welcome to the True Tunes Podcast, man. It has been too long. <laughs> it's been a long time. <laughs> it has been It's great to time. talk to you. Great to be here. Even as you stepped into ministry and all this other stuff, you keep putting out record and different configurations. And then even the years that I was at Capitol, I was in publishing. I'm pitching your stuff for film and TV placements and stuff like that. <laughs> so I, I was like, I've got this ongoing. I, I hear Ronnie Martin in my head all the time. But then I realized we haven't actually spoken in 20 years or something like that. It's yeah, probably crazy. at least. Thanks for making some time here. And uh, we got this pleasure. awesome Ronnie Martin album to talk about. But before we dive into that, I know that there's listeners that are not familiar. So I want to hear your your story. Like, when did you start making music and the particular kind of music that you developed a passion for so young? How did that all come about for you? I think it was when we were introduced, my, my younger brother and I, Jason, we were introduced by my mom to artists like Larry Norman and Daniel Amos. This would be the late 70s when we are being shuttled in a 12-passenger Econoline Ford van back and forth to school and church and all of these things. And, you know, my mom was, uh, you know, I guess you could say a little progressive in her 
you know, musical tastes. And so at the time, those would have been the progressive artists, right? So it would have been Keith Green, who actually was pretty progressive, and uh, Larry Norman, Daniel Amos, and a bunch of other artists that probably only made one or two records from that era. And we would put in those eight tracks and we would listen. And that was my introduction into, I think, just something God formed inside of me that said, hey, I want to write songs like that. I want to learn how to play an instrument so that I can write songs. And then the next step in that evolution was when they bought my brother and I a piano and we started taking piano lessons. And the journey just began really at that point. But really, at the, at the, from the very beginning, I... I just wanted to learn how to write songs. I was so fascinated by that. And so songwriting from day one was really what I aspired to do. And then as I as you know, as I got older and I became a teenager in the 80s, bands like Daniel Amos, records like uh, Vox Humana and Fearful Symmetry just really shaped this desire to want to make sounds like that and kind of, you know, kind of move into the abstract when it came to lyrics and things of that nature. I get a sugar rush Thinking of you too much I get a sugar rush Thinking of you too much I only want to be With you for all eternity A holiday that will never go away There really weren't Christian artists in the Christian bubble doing synth-based. I mean, there was a couple. There was Quick Flight. There was yeah. Weber and the Buzz Tones that nobody's heard of. But you yeah. kind of came out, and it sounded like you were mostly listening to mainstream college rock. But well, you're that, saying it was really CCM. It was it was the it cool was. side of Christian music that inspired. It you. was it's interesting. Yeah, that I mean, those bands came later. You know, I think. But my introduction as just a young church kid would have been, you know, the bands I was quote unquote allowed to listen to. I don't know why I put quotes around that because that was exactly what it was. It was the literal truth was, you know, so you anything that was on the shelf, which is really ironic, actually, anything that was on the shelves at a Christian book or music store was allowed. And so um, Quick Flight, Daniel Amos, uh, because I was a piano player, I was probably naturally you know, sort of pulled into, you know, synth sounds and things of that nature. And then later on, you know, as we, as our tastes expanded, and I always say we, because my brother and I were on this journey together, but, you know, as our tastes expanded, we did discover uh, New Order and Depeche Mode and the Pet Shop Boys. And we would come home from youth group late on a Friday night, and there was a channel that showed Top of the Pops. So then we're seeing these bands, you know, playing their hits, you know, every week, it was just coming into contact with all those artists that the quick flights and the Terry Taylors were, you know, influenced by at that during those eras. And so we kind of got into the sort of the heart of, of what it was that they were being influenced by. And it was all, you know, it was all just, um, it was all the same for us. It was just sort of this European influenced melancholy songwriting, you know, kind of happy, sad songwriting. So, you know, you think of bands like the Smiths and, and uh, New Order and, the, and those those types of artists, and I was just re- I was really influenced by that, and that's that's what I wanted to do. After the fire was another group that was kind of part of the same scene so they have yeah. their commissar their big hit in america but 
before that they had all these really cool progressive synth. Well, you know, it's funny you say after the fire because I it's I I always hesitate to say them because their greatest hits record, which was entitled Der Commissar, is probably my greatest influence of any synth record ever made. I've just been so influenced by songs like Carry Me Home, Laser Love, Levels Make You Cry. I mean, I I, I still, every, that's a summer record for me, believe it or not. So when summer comes around, we li I listen to that record all summer, even in my old age. But yeah, that was a massive influence because we, being from Southern California, there was a radio station out there called KYMS in the, in the early to mid 80s. And uh, they played all kinds of After the Fire stuff. And so we would hear that, we would hear those things on the radio. So yeah, just all of that just form just, was part and parcel, you know, of, of what developed me. artists that you were really inspired by were all i mean maybe with the exception of keith green they were all artists that were trying to make music for the whole world and th so that's one of the reasons i think their their stuff just had more i don't know just something cool about it but it, and, and depth to it it strikes me last year when you uh reissued that morella's forest project that first thing you guys had done you guys weren't coming at this it didn't seem to me anyway to be a Christian version of something. The youth group kids could listen to this. It sounded like you guys were trying to make music for everybody. Am I off on that? Or do you remember your perspective on that when you were just getting started? Well, I just don't think we really cared too much. I, I mean, I we wanted anybody that could enjoy the music to be able to enjoy the music. I also think we were, even from a young age, we were realistic. So if uh, we're working with a Christian label, we also understand that it's primarily gonna go to a Christian audience. I just don't think we were ever that particularly angst-filled about that realization. I, I mean, I think we both would have liked our music to go wider than it ever did or has. At the same time, th that is just the path that the Lord brought us on, and it didn't it didn't move into wider horizons. So I I think because those Christian artists in that Christian bubble were our heroes, I think just to be able to get an opportunity to put records out alongside of them that were sold right next to them on the shelves was a major thing for us. It was a huge thing. And, you know, and I think once you get into it, then you're thinking you, you start to see the possibilities like, well, this, this is pretty narrow and we are doing incredibly narrow music for this market. But when I look out, we would, we would see other bands that were doing what we were doing and had much larger, wider audiences. So then the challenge is, well, how do you get out there and do that? And we don't have any clue about any of that stuff. We just, we're just, you know, quirky art kids making music. So um, at the end of the day and 30, 40 years later, you know, those those opportunities, you know, never really came our way in a lot of ways. Um, for whatever reason, the Lord had something else in mind. He may have been protecting us from something. But yeah, I, I don't think ever, none of that was really even 
talked about or thought about. It was like, this is the opportunity and we're just going to make the records that we want to make. And it's kind of the, the Christian market, as much as it's been maligned over the years, um, you know, there was something really fun about doing something that you knew would pop and that you could be a little, you, you could be the only one in that particular market that did that particular thing. So you were not drowned out by all kinds of like wallpaper and white noise of, of, you know, so many artists. So there was something kind of fun about that. I think too, to look at it in a more redemptive way rather than, you know, a, you know, we're not, we're not bitter is what I guess I'm trying to say to you. As you differentiated your music from Jason's, Jason doing Starflyer, that very guitar-driven, ambient, you know, thing that he has done so well, but then you going the other way with Joy Electric. Tell me about how you saw yourself once you guys separated and started doing your own things and how you evolved as an artist at that point. Oh, man, it's a a great question. I, I think to really simplify that, question i think what most people don't understand is jason and i we have all the same influences our number one influence would be new order and so ironically enough i just sort of pulled from the electronic side of new order and he ended up just pulling more from the uh rock and roll acoustic they're not really acoustic but you know what i mean a little more the the modern rocky sort of sound that they cultivated to us it didn't seem like that great of a divide because of the bands that we that we listened to and enjoyed it was there was such a sense in the mid to late 80s where you weren't really thinking of music as being so polarized you know it wasn't until really nirvana came out and then a lot of that 80s stuff whether it was like goofy electronic music or crazy hair metal stuff uh, you know we, we had all these distinctions that were being made when that happened that was really kind of the 90s in some ways but before that in the 80s it was like I love the Pet Shop Boys, but I also love a ton of like guitar-oriented band. Like it, it, those distinctions didn't matter to to us. It was just what instruments are you using? Oh, cool! It's all it's all cool. You can do something cool with it. And so I think I just was for whatever reason I just had a fascination with uh, all the synth stuff and the analog synths. And Jason just kind of picked up the guitar and started learning the guitar. Um, you know, after we had began our journey. And that's just sort of how it paired off. And so I just saw what I did as an opportunity to pick up where some of these older artists in the Christian scene, like I mentioned before, Quick Flight or After the Fire, or Daniel Amos, that scene kind of, it, it, it never really, I would say, nobody really picked up the mantle with any of that and said, I just want to be an exclusively 
synth-driven artist for the, my entire career. You know, you look at a band like Mad at the World and they had such a horrific, they made that incredible debut album and they had such a horrific experience for the way that they were received from it that it was like, they just didn't want to continue that way. So I looked at even what they did and said, what if I just became an exclusive synth-oriented artist and just kept doubling down on it with every record? Ladies and gentlemen, children of all ages, the Electric Joy Toy Company Electronic Music Workshop presents Joy Electric singing the TikTok Treasure. And you didn't just choose synths. You chose analog. like, And that was analog when analog was at its lowest point of popularity. You were right. putting yourself out there on the dark side of the moon sonically. But then what's interesting is that if you just played these songs with a full band, it could be the Beach Boys. It could be, they were pop songs, you know, and, yeah. and so why the, the Moog thing? Like why go the most difficult route when, when suddenly in the early nineties, we had affordable samplers that could do all this stuff for a couple hundred bucks you're gonna make it as difficult as possible <laughs> tell I me know. about that it's a great question I, there yeah there's a lot of foolishness i guess <laughs> um, a lot of stupidity in the, into the 90s there was this phenomenon in the uk called acid house that happened so dance music came back in a big way over there and in all these underground parties and so analog synths made a big return there because they were cheap at the time and you could get them for pennies and so i I benefited from that, so I was able to build this pretty comprehensive studio with all kinds of analog stuff. And people just realized just the sort of the joy and the warmth and the creativity of those types of synths and the ease of being able to to generate sounds because everything was right at your fingertips. So I just picked up on that. I loved it. I fell in love with it. And I just wanted to see how I could keep progressing with it. But that was just the production side of it. And the songwriting side of it was where I was most invested. So, um, and again, that got lost because the production was, you know, you got a guy in the Christian market making Kraftwerk albums. It's like, you know, it, it just didn't make any sense and didn't add up to a lot of people that, that were looking for something a little more, you know, easily digestible. But I don't know. I, I really had a love for what I was doing. I wanted to see where I could continue to take it. And I, had carved out a niche and I, I wanted I wanted to stay faithful to it, even though I, there were so many people, including the the, the label, was saying, yeah, if, if you just did this or you just did that. And it's like, yeah, but that wouldn't be staying true to what I, I don't want to do anything I don't love to do. I have to love what I'm doing. And I just loved what I was doing. And so it was, um, it was probably pretty ill-advised from a commercial standpoint. Although, you know, being on Tooth and Nail, um, there there would have been no better spot for us because they just supported, and you know, Brandon was behind everything I did, and the sales or lack of sales just didn't matter to him because he had all kinds of not all kinds, but he had a few select artists that were doing so well that he could support us and fund us. So it was. It was really a great spot to be in for all those years, you know. Looking back, would I have done things differently? Well, you know, hindsight's always a remarkable thing. Of, of course, I would do some things differently. But, you know, when you're in your 20s and you're young and, you know, you're very determined, you're very artistic, 
and you're you're very um, idealistic. I just yeah, I was very committed to the craft. guessing based on what i know about the sales and stuff that probably joy electric was not able to be your primary income source most of those years right you you were doing other work so that you could do the music that you wanted to do instead of having to make the music that would make you money well yeah you know we were jason both jason and i were in really great positions with that because my dad owned a company and there was a lot of flexibility. So we we were able to do a lot of stuff out on the road and be in the studio and play the festival circuit in the summer and always return to my dad's company and generate, you know, additional income that way. And um, I did make a living off it for a couple of years full time when I, I had a sub label out of Tooth & Nail called Plastic Music, a whole different thing. So I, w- I was able to kind of generate a salary from that and and make a living through that for a little while for a couple of years full time but you know it was a really great position to be in because we didn't have the pressure of needing you know to 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 make that that full-time so and we and at that time you know we we had you know we had wives and we were starting to have kids and so there was there was that pressure there but I think more than anything we just wanted to make the records that we we wanted to make that was the um priority for sure that's really helpful for young listeners, for the college students the, that are that want to do something really interesting, and then they find that that tension point where it's like, well, you can make really cool art or you can make money. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes you can do both, but yeah. often it takes a long time for really good, interesting art to find enough of an audience for it to be your living. So if you if you understand that and you you are bivocational in that regard. You you do something else to pay the bills so that you can make this music. Then your music can end up being more interesting. If you say, I've got to have a hit in the first 18 months that I'm out the gate, you're going to end up making stuff that sounds like everybody else. Yeah, you're talking about being derivative. But you know what's so interesting is when you go back to those tooth and nail days in the 90s, you know, there were so many artists that Brandon signed that had that sound that should have sold gobloads of records and they they never hit, you know, and they made one record or they made two records and, you know, the, the label let them go because they were signed with the intention of producing sales and hits. So I, I think the place that I always came at it from was 
I could alter my sound or I could do something more dancey and I could do something that I think would generate a wider audience, but there's no guarantee that that's going to do anything. And then I'm just making a product that I, I don't even love for the sake of something that there is no guarantee to be a payoff for. And so, you know, the, the trade-off was just not worth it. And it, it would have just, you know, it, it may have even just harmed, you know, the, the following that we, that we did have, that, that we were building upon, which did build very slowly. And, and people, you know, I, I don't know that, how do I say this in a way that sounds humble? Um, artists like Jason and I, who, you know, we didn't have massive sales. We did a lot better than people think we did, you know, and it was um, because again, we, we just, um, we stuck to our guns, I think in some, some way. And there were people that just grew with us slowly over the years. And, um, and there was something really fun about that too, you know? Um, and I always had, I had my own studio. So, cause I had to spend, a, these records took a long time to make. So, you know, my studio costs were really, really low. And so there were, there were some unique things like that, that, that were, uh, you know, definitely beneficial. I'll be back with more of my conversation with Ronnie Martin after this. Hey guys, I'm Troy Colberth of Cross Worship in Cincinnati, Ohio. You may have heard of us on the True Tunes Gallery Stage Mixtape or caught us on YouTube. I want to thank Vision Trust for investing in the work being done by local heroes globally who are making a real difference in the lives of children around the world. These men and women provide health, education, spiritual development, and community development targeted to help children and their families in some of the most fragile places on the planet. We are honored to support Vision Trust as they support these children. And I invite you to join us and True Tunes as we work to bring more children into these life-saving programs through one-on-one -on -one relationships. For just $40 a month, you can change the world for one of these kids. That's just about $10 a week. To learn more, find the link on the show notes page for this episode at truetunes.com or just look for the Sponsor the Child link on the True Tunes homepage. You can also find the link on our website, visiontrust.org forward slash crossworship. Thank you, Vision Trust, for all you do to support these children. It's an honor to stand with you in this work. Hello, I'm Chris, and I'm a Patreon supporter of the True Tunes podcast, which has quickly become one of my favorite podcasts. I can always expect John's warm voice and insightful questions to draw out the stories, wisdom, and faith of beloved and new to me musical artists. After every episode, I'm always listening with fresh ears to favorite albums or visiting new albums for the first time. It's just like when I used to visit the old True Tunes store in Wheaton, Illinois, but now I can visit every week with new episodes. True Tunes Patreon supporters support the show with monthly donations of $5, $10, or $20, which helps cover the cost of producing and hosting the show. As a thanks for our support, we get early access to episodes and high-quality, lossless WAV files of each episode that we can download. We also have occasional Zoom meetups, some special live streams, discounts on True Tunes swag, and more. You can join me and the other patrons by visiting patreon.com slash truetunes or finding the link on the show notes page. If an ongoing patronage thing is not the right fit for you, 
but you'd like to give us a tip to help with the costs associated with this show, you can find links for that on the show notes page. Thanks and enjoy. Hello, my name's Rob, and I'm one of the Patreon backers of the True Tunes podcast. I'm honored to invite you to join me in support of True Tunes by signing up on their email list. I know email is often annoying, but by being on the list, I get notified when new episodes drop and when new articles get posted at truetunes.com. Sometimes, John even sends out short notes and gives away records and swag and stuff. Super cool. But really, the point is that by staying directly connected, I know that they don't have to pay Facebook or anyone else in order for me to hear from them, and that's important. They don't send out too many emails either, and I'm always happy to get them. So really, it would be helpful if you'd join me over here. You can find the sign-up link on the front page at truetunes.com. Oh, and don't forget to add John's email address, jjt at truetunes.com, to your contacts so that the emails don't get caught in your spam filter. And if you have any feedback on the show or questions, you can email him and he'll get back to you eventually. Thanks for listening. Now, back to my conversation with Ronnie Martin. I want to talk about the new record from the womb of the morning. The do of you, you're, I can't even say it. Well, we don't have enough. If we had another hour, you could. Yeah, right. I could read the whole title (laughs) from the womb of the morning. The do of your youth will be yours. Right. Um, tell me about this project. First of all, uh, what kind of spark goes off and says, it's time to make another record. And along with that, how do you decide, or at what point do you decide that this is a Ronnie Martin record and not a new joy electric record? Where do I begin with that? It's a great question. Um, you know, I've, I, I'm always writing songs. It just, they flow out, they come out of me. So before anything else, I'm a songwriter. And I, when I, you know, I transitioned into some ministry things, uh, you know, over a decade ago that included a relocation to Ohio out of Southern California. And I just entered a period of my life uh, filled with ministry and seminary and all of these things where I, the, the time necessary to you know make a record just wasn't there and um i went on a sabbatical in uh in 2018 and i i connected with jeff cloud we hadn't seen each other in a couple of years so we we hooked up and just uh hung out for a little while and we were just talking about music and he was interested in you know doing something and i said well i go i would love to do something i go but i really don't want to do i really want to shed the joy electric title I said, because I have some different ideas about some things that I want to do, and um, I would love to just do it. I, you know, because I've, I, I write books now, and I do all this other stuff, and social media, and I said, so my name is out there a little bit more than, than the name Joy Electric is, so I would love to just kind of, kind of just keep my name and, and get it out there and, and do it under my name, and he was, he was really good with that. He said, yeah, let's do it. And so two years pass and I still have no, t- I said, you have to be patient. I said, because I don't know when I'm going to have time. And I go, and I got to rebuild my studio and all this stuff needed to be done. And so I come into 2020 COVID hits and some time finally opens up for me. And um, <laughs> Funny how that, there's a lot of great records have come out of the shutdown. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Put, yeah, put and an that, artist and- in a room and lock the doors <laughs> for long enough. And there's going to be, if he's got a studio, you're, you're going to get a record. And that was it. I mean, that's, that's literally what happened. And, um, I had, I finally had a chunk of time in front of me 
and capitalized on it and had I had the songs ready to go and um, just uh, just did it. Every title references a line from a different, most of them are either Psalms or Ecclesiastes, but I think there's one that's Isaiah. These wonderful titles that, unless you're really kind of familiar with reading wisdom literature and stuff, you're you're probably going to think this is just some sort of prog rock, you know, pretense. <laughs> but you're taking an image from that stuff, and then you're going into a different kind of poetic space that's very oblique and esoteric. Tell me about the songwriting from a lyrical perspective on this, because it's really, really interesting. Well, I appreciate that. Thanks for saying that. Um, I love wisdom literature. And so I spend I spend a good portion of my years just cycling through wisdom literature as part of you know daily readings that I do, especially the Psalms. When you read wisdom literature, it's so interesting and it's so poetic and it is so abstract. I love abstractness when it comes to lyrics. I love abstract lyrics. And so what I thought might be a really interesting idea is to take some take some of these lines from wisdom literature, like like the title track. And just use them as a backdrop to create something a little more abstract. Some of these titles really jumped out at me as as being a really interesting place to go conceptually. I think a lot of people, when they hear something like abstract, they think that that means this doesn't mean anything. Like this is just random words. But that's not that's not the, the artistic understanding of abstract art. So tell me about how you understand that idea of abstraction as it relates to Uh, these songs yeah i think for me i'm okay with things not i'm okay with people generating some of their own particular personal meanings out of from from art you know so uh, you know when you look at a painting or an abstract painting i mean you know and, and if people understand how to how to view it and how to you know gain some level of appreciation from it it's going to carry particular meanings for different people based on what their eyes see, how it affects their heart, and how they're able to communicate what's going on inside as they, you know, are able to, you know, gain this impression from it. And so I I know with music it's a little bit different because we're talking about, you know, generally speaking, short pop songs, which you only, you know, you have a you have this you have this small opportunity, given the way a song is written and it has a chorus and it has verses and it's you have to get to the point very quickly. But I always think, what what can I do within that very, very tiny framework to deliver something that can be more impressionistic? Um, and so I can create something in the abstract, which to me might have a particular meaning, um, but somebody else might be able to gain something you know, different from it. And again, we're not just talking about lyrics too, but we're talking about what the melody, what the melody combined with the lyrics might form into somebody's overall impression of a thing. I just like the way music can work that way, and so that was the, that was really the idea behind it. Take something inspired by the Psalms, but create an abstract out of it, which will then form different impressions by people who are listening to it. And when you do that, you're putting more confidence in the work and trust in the audience. What I think a lot of faith-driven people have not had a lot of role models when it comes to artists that are confident in the truthfulness of their work and then they can trust the audience to say hey take it and you know take your impressions and enjoy it i'm not going to tell you exactly what to think because that that pushes against the sort of 
industrial evangelical uh, agenda driven thing where the music is really just an excuse to deliver some propaganda or of a particular idea you find a peg to hang something on which is this is actually a sentence or an image from the scriptures so depending on where the listener comes they might at least with wisdom literature they're probably not going to be too turned off by that it's got poetic value if nothing else even if you're not a, a religious person but by by pegging those things then even somebody who's very conservative and very traditional and they're mm. they're going to be able to say this this is in the bible therefore then the rest of your poetry though kind of allows them the freedom to kind of dance around and say how does this really what is this image telling me and how does it make me feel and what does mm. it evoke you know um, that's a great I, point that's i really appreciate well that because it's just mm. a lot of young artists especially don't have a lot of examples of that What was the first song that you wrote and produced and got done where you're like, okay, now I know where I'm going. Now I know how this record's going to sound. I think the, f gosh, you know, it, it's, uh, ironically enough, the first record that I think I, I did, which isn't really representative of the whole record, was There Go the Ships and Leviathan, which is kind of a really dark, you know, kind of creepy sounding tune. Um, that, that definitely is a, is a little less, um, you know, it would definitely be one of the, uh, the stranger songs on, on the record, a little more artistic songs in the record. And that one I was, so I was kind of finding my feet with that and I wanted to have all these big Tom sounds, you know, that was my joy division, you know, influence there. I don't, I don't really like high, I don't do hi-hats. So I wanted all to have all these toms and snares. And so that one kind of got me going a little bit. Now, the music on this, when I first heard it, my, my youngest son is 17, and he's a huge fan of Stranger Things, and then that got mm. him all into 80s music. I'm like, this sounds like it could could have been in Stranger Things. Like, this music, a lot of it does feel like it came out of a time machine almost. Sonically, it's bigger, and, and I, the drums sound fuller, but they're still drum machines. They're still programmed, but they just sound, everything about this sounds bigger. So tell me about how you approached this technically you're building it from nothing to something so walk me through your thinking of the construction of the sonics mm. of this thing yeah you know i wanted I, i'm still only interested in, in analog synths, so i wanted it to be remain authentically analog but i also didn't want to go back to some of my 
my older, really narrow methodology, which was everything had to be monophonic. The only sounds that you heard were generated from the Moogs. I wanted to step away from that Kraftwerkian world that I'd created in the past um, because, you know, I... Yeah, I'd done a lot of records like that, you know, um, and I wanted to, I was looking back to artists from that era, from the 70s and 80s, which, uh, and, and they, I just basically wanted to create a new world that expanded my horizons, but really kept me in the same genre. So I, I recognized that people that enjoyed the Joy Electric albums, I didn't want to, I didn't want to move to a place that was going to be difficult for them. I actually wanted to move to a place that I thought would be even easier for them and they would be more, even more receptive to. But having said that, I allowed myself to not be so narrow-minded in the process. So, um, you know, to say, hey, r- make a new set of rules that allows you to use some old drum machines from the 80s, because I wanted to have this massive um, Phil Collins meets Peter Gabriel drum sound. I lo- I've always loved that drum sound. But when you're trying, when you're making, you know, um, Tangerine Dream and Kraftwerk oriented records, there- there's not a lot of space for it, right? Um, so I said that's one of the things I want to do is create this really wide, full drum sound that really dominates the way drum sounds used to dominate that era. So if if you listen to those records from that era, those drum sounds are mixed so loud, they're mixed so high, and I and that's what I wanted. I wanted those drum sounds to be mixed really high. And then the second thing was that I wanted to move away from monophonic synths into polyphonic synths. So um, I wanted to use chords and just have a little more musicality rather than everything being these simple mono lines that are, you know, you layer 50 of those lines on top of each other and you got this big mess of synthetic programming. I wanted to create something bigger by using less, but, you know, be able to use polyphony and chords and just do arrangements that showed a little more musicality um, than I'd had in the past. I also wanted to create more ambient kind of textures that I just, again, hadn't done with Joy Electric. I wanted to, I was so narrow in how I was making those albums. So it was an opportunity to say, hey, what would it look like for you to be influenced by Peter Gabriel and um, by some of these artists from that particular era and make, make an album that, that you conceivably could have made if it was 1983 or 1984. Um, because really, Joy Electric was an exercise in 70s influences more than anything else. So basically, I just moved up a decade. Can you tell me, for instance, the drums? How did you actually do it? Because, you know, the thing that seems to have happened in the 80s was the, the either discovery or invention of things like gated reverbs and things yeah. that you could run through. And so all of a sudden, you hear it across, the, and it lets drums be huge, without sonically sucking all of the air out of everything else. How did you go about accomplishing what you wanted to do? You know, I've owned all these drum machines from from the 80s, um, digital drum machines. And so that's the one digital element on the record. And I love digital drum machines. I love analog drum machines too, um, but I love digital drum machines. So I, I took out some of my old digital drum machines and, uh, you know, you programmed them and then supplemented them with some analog drum sounds so that I could have this very layered sound. And then the instruction to Bob Hogue, who mixed the record, um, a, a guy from Phoenix was, hey, so I, I really want you to use things like gated reverbs. <laughs> Those, I, I really want to have that kind of sound. He understands it perfectly. And that's what he did. And so that's why you have this very separated but very large, expansive drum sound. 
fun to hear this uh, golf slang remix of the 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 morning song. That golf slang is Jamie from Luxury, right? Yeah, yeah. So tell me about that process. How does that work when you actually do a... I mean, that's not just a remix. I mean, he's adding a bunch of guitars and all kinds of... So tell me how that process works and what's that like as an artist to kind of hand your stuff over to somebody else and then get something like that back? I mean, yeah, we've been friends with the Luxury guys since the Tooth and Nail days. They're such great guys. Um, We've, you know, we keep in touch via social media. So was really excited when they kind of got back into it and they released the documentary. And um, so we have a lot of commonality. Uh, Our influences are all the same and they've always been massive Joy-E fans and Starflare fans. So there's there's just a lot of friendship there. And um, it wasn't even my idea. That was Jeff Cloud's idea. He said, hey, what if we got Jamie Bozeman to remix the title track? And I said, yeah, absolutely. I love that and love Jamie. And he did a great job and he, he warned me, he said, hey, I, it's probably not going to be a remix. It's almost a redo. I'm going to take some of your tracks and just do something new over. And I said, oh, you know, you do whatever you want. And I, I yeah, I enjoy that. So he, I said, carte blanche, you know, you do whatever you want and I'm going to love it. And I did. Speaking of Cloud and Velvet Blue, we got to talk about this guy. I mean, man, mm. talk about a lifer. He, he and I go back to the start yeah. off at almost about the same time. And so uh, tell me how you end up um, migrating, because you were tooth and nail, your whole thing. But way back when, one, one of the first records was actually Velvet Blue, like in the early 90s, right? A seven inch single or something like that? Uh, yeah, Cloud, he just started the label and... He asked, you know, would you contribute something so that I can start to build my roster? And so, you know, we, yeah, we did that. And he's found an audience that he continues to stoke those coals. 100%. Um, I mean, he's been a friend for, oh my gosh, so many years now. And I, he has a lot of integrity with what he does. To see how things have gone full circle, I, I mean, Jeff is, you know, he's so committed to what he does that he turned down opportunities for wide distribution because he was afraid that it would you know, pollute the music. You know, he's a guy that has a fascination for labels like Virgin Records when they started back, you know, in the early days and it was a mail order only label. And, you know, he he has a vision for what he's doing. And ironically enough to see it go full circle into the sense that, well, all labels are mail order now, right? I mean, there's record stores are, you know, it's gone back to just independent record stores that primarily sell vinyl and the playing field has been leveled. You know, for independent labels, I mean, just for a guy that's been doing it since 1996, I mean, he he's gained a pretty um, loyal and wide audience for what he does and pretty, pretty amazing. Yeah. And Cloud and Velvet Blue, they really invest in the packaging and creating yeah. product that people are still willing to buy. And that would be a shared value. We care desperately about the artwork and the medium, you know, so I remember when we sat down. I don't know when it was a year or so ago when we started talking about the options for this record 
he goes, well, I want to do it in every format. So he goes, so I want to do cassettes, CDs, we'll do vinyl. And I went, you know, he gets, you know, he did trading cards and he had all these extra promo items. And we love things like that, you know, so it's, you're creating an experience for the listener. You're giving them options for listening environments. And it's just so fun to have somebody like Jeff who is, you know, he's so committed to all of that. And so it's, it's really amazing. It's really fun. We're going to step away from my conversation with Ronnie for just a couple minutes and crank up the old True Tunes jukebox. All of this talk about how Ronnie has so effectively squeezed some very human music out of Moog synths and drum machines reminds me of a group that, though they never became nearly as famous as they should have, made a major impact with their blend of dance floor beats, stacks of synths, and spiritually aspirational lyrics. So, I've got a plastic penny here, let me drop it into the slot and see what happens. One of the lesser-known points of impact of the Jesus movement of the late 60s and early 70s was the way it influenced the progressive art scene in London. Where the American version of Jesus music quickly evolved into contemporary Christian music, with marketing and branding focused on the Christian community, in the UK and Europe, several artists worked to function in the mainstream culture with their music. One of those artists was an actor, painter, musician, and cultural commentator named Steve Fairney. After finishing his master's degree in sculpture at London's Royal Academy of Art, Fernie started an acoustic gospel duo called Fishco, and later formed a new wave post-punk band called Ritz, which became a mainstay in the London club scene. Along with his wife, Bev Sage, also a member of Ritz, Fernie formed multiple creative projects, famous names, casual tees, and ultimately the Techno Twins, who later became simply the Technos. Be strong. 
his comrades certainly helped inspire creative and artistic greatness. One member of Ritz, Willie Williams, went on to become a key member of U2's touring team, first as a lighting designer, but currently helping to fashion their massive stage sets and concert themes. 10CC's Godly and Cream produced a single for them called Night Nurse that got some attention on the charts. Even members of their tech crew went on to further success. One became the main sound man for Wham! and George Michael, while another worked with Paul McCartney and others. In the 90s, the British electronic dance music Mix Magazine gave Fairney credit for coining the term techno music with his band's name. He's always been the one to stand alone. big a fan as I am of all things Fernie, I thought of a couple of people I should check in with on the subject. Our friend Randy Layton, founder of Alternative Records, was importing Technos and Ritz records long before most of us had any idea they existed. During a recent conversation, I asked him about Fernie in particular and why the UK scene was so different than the US when it came to how faith, spirituality, and music intertwined. You know, he just didn't see walls right to him it was it was all one playing field and he could explore that as a christian without having to contextualize it in a particular fashion like this is my christian version of this or whatever because in america you seem to get a lot of uh especially as the as the uh you know time went on you know if you like if you like acdc then you'll like x center you know i mean or because they sound like that sort of thing um and that wasn't really the, you know the case over there so it made for i think much more uh genuine uh expressions of, of art and faith than i i think than that than we got over here they had the greenbelt arts festival long before we were doing anything close to that here and we've never actually really come close although cornerstone got got there eventually but having cornerstone pick up the mail to, to, to a large degree was, was great. So I think my, my interest in, in things like, like the technos again, because, you know, if you put on, say, you know, foreign land, you know, you're not going to go, oh, well, well, that's a Christian record. But if you start exploring, you know, the whole album that, that that's from, I mean, you can find the Christianity, you know, in it um, to get that picture you you also said would have to listen to everything. You'd have to listen to Ritz, Techno Nostalgia, you know, the Technos, all those different projects 
uh, gosh, you know, the the compilation, the the curious collection is another good place to go. When you listen to all that as as part of one big sweeping, you know, piece piece of work, then I think Jesus is to be found in that. But if you were to pick on, you know, techno nostalgia in particular and go, is it here? I mean, in, you know, that's not the point. The point is, is that you're a Christian and, and you're expressing yourself. And some of those things are going to be more about just dancing and enjoying yourself. And other things are going to be more thought provoking and other things are going to drive you crazy. It's, he made a board game at one point. Like, yeah, the board, which I have invented a board I, game. What was that board game about? The slime and the grime of the music business. Yeah. I remember <laughs> that very well. Um, yeah. I mean, it was a rather elaborate thing and I can't imagine people sitting down now and having the patience to play it, but it was wonderful. It, you know, it, it, uh, and, and he'd already had experience, you know, the slime and the grime of, of, of the biz. So, uh, to be commissioned by, by, by Virgin games to do that and pull it off was, was pretty amazing. And I remember, you know, getting that when, when it, when it, when it came out. But yeah, it came with a 12 inch single as well, which I believe was um, Foreign Land, and it was backed with Hype. I I could be wrong on the on the on the a, on the A side, but Hype was was the B side, and and that was like the the theme to the to the board game. And yeah, he just had all these pieces, and he went around the board, and he just went through everything that we all kind of know about, you know, the distribution game, the media game all that stuff i mean other all those elements were part of that so i mean i, I also think it sold terribly and and you know it didn't <laughs> well, real well. pretty small well but it's still think, a brilliant brilliant idea I, I i think seeds one of my favorite comments i think I ever made was was something along the lines of uh you know my biggest frustration is i've, I've never done anything that made any money and i, I wish i had the 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 exact quote because it's probably even better than that but instead he got to be one of those guys who just influenced you know so many people and i, I think by the time he had died he had actually considered himself re retired from music at that point and he was you know teaching so yeah he was as you know i posted this thing on facebook i don't know like eight or nine years ago which was a bunch of clippings of things i'd saved from you know new musical express and other things about famous names or writs and all those things, all those bands. That started this amazing conversation where everyone jumped in. You know, I mean, Steve was on, Steve Turner, Steve Scott, Bev, uh, Steve Rolls, all, all these different people from that scene, all weighing in on not only that particular music, but how they all first met back in the early 70s and, you know, the art scene. The slime and the slime and the slime and the grime.
Steve Scott was a close friend of Fernie and Bev Sage, as well as writer Steve Turner and others during those heady days in London. When he was at my home for a poetry event a couple of years ago, I asked him about that scene in those days. British Christian artists were kind of thickening a bit in London around something called the Art Center Group, run by Nigel and Jilly Goodwin. I'd first seen Nigel Goodwin at a like a Youth for Christ weekend. And at that weekend was Nigel Goodwin talking about the arts and his intent to start an art center group. Steve Fernie was, I think, either com- he was completing his undergraduate work in Bristol. He ended up coming to the Royal College of Art in London. During the early to mid-1970s, I would connect here and there with, with them. And I, I saw the various incarnations of the band. There was there was Fish Company. Then it got a lot more theatrical with Ritz and famous names and technos. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you were in London in the midst of a community of progressive, engaged Christians who were of a like mind, it sounds like, to kind of go against the flow of religious culture. The conversation at the Arts Center Group was was pretty robustly about thinking through your relationship to the larger culture and engaging it, of course, not on its own terms, but neither on the terms of the Christian subculture. But Steve Fernie, Bev, Rupert Lloydell, there was like an emerging reaction to the somewhat vertical pietistic subculture things like that so yeah there was and um i remember when uh, hans ruckmarker hans ruckmarker's the first edition of hans ruckmarker's book uh modern art and death of a culture came out with ivp in 1970 and i remember seeing our ruckmarker lecture at the royal college of art uh talking about you know art and faith issues from his particular perspective uh, in 1973. You're a part of that sort of laboratory in the UK, and then through Randy, you end up coming to America yeah. and working with Larry Norman. Larry had come over, I think he was starting his record label, Solid Rock, and he talked to me about it. For me, Christian music, popular subculture in the early 70s in Britain was you know Graham Kendrick as singer-songwriter. Uh, Judy McKenzie and Dave Cook, who's the brilliant jazz guitarist who went on to work with Cliff Richard. A band called Dave Reese and the Mighty Flyers, who were very grungy and very heavy. And I swear they ran an ad at the back of Buzz magazine somewhere around 1973 describing themselves as punk rock. I I, I thought, I've seen that. I've seen that phrase somewhere. But yes, it was very different coming to this country uh, at first, I thought, yes, the answer to all my troubles, all my problems are going to be solved. Uh, I'm out of art school, and I was making experimental films and writing poetry and doing poetry readings, and I'd started writing songs. And so when people, when people said to me, hey, why don't you come to our country and make an album of these songs, what went off in my head was, go there, record these songs, earn something to live on, go to lots of bookstores and galleries and experimental film screenings and things like that. 
plan A was <laughs> was to do that. Uh, but what I stepped into was, you know, like a, a a highly developing or developed Jesus culture. A lot of emphasis on a certain strand of eschatological, you know, end times thinking. It was a delirious time because of these these strands of think these fringy strands of thinking that I was surrounded by, and also going into the studio a lot and seeing like a Tom Howard or a Mark Hurd or a John Lynn or a Randy Stonehill cutting things. That was great. I mean, it was like living a dream. And at one point, I'd visited England and I'd gotten back to America. It was Sarah, Randy's wife of the time. It was like one of those, oh, by the way, conversations as we were driving from the airport back to Woodland Hills. Bob Dylan started to attend a Bible study at, at the Vineyard, which was Ken, a, a church under Ken Gullickson in, in North Hollywood. I, so I, I just thought, this place this is insane. Anything's possible. <laughs> Dylan's going to a Bible study. Everyone's talking about the end times. Uh, I'm going to be a Jesus pop star. <laughs> <laughs> Despite the band's critical acclaim and the massive influence Steve had on other artists, Bono, for instance, closed the Zoo TV tour every night with a quote from a Ritz song. Fernie struggled to make ends meet. He was probably best known, for a time at least, as a highly sought-after Charlie Chaplin impersonator. Though the band scored one top 10 dance club hit in the U.S. in 1983, mainstream acceptance never materialized. Refuge Records released a compilation of their songs in the U.S., but by the late 80s, Fernie was all but done with music. He died in 1993 of an asthma attack while on a field trip with a group of art students. He left behind an impressive body of work and a lasting impact on the concept of the relationship between faith and art in the modern world. Yeah. 
Steve and Bev's son Jake recently compiled a greatest hits collection of Techno Twins material. It can be found at fairney.net. That's F-A-I-R-N-I-E dot net. Techno Twins album Technostalgia, which included several covers of famous pop songs, is up on Spotify, and a larger number of tracks can be found on YouTube as well. Though it's frustrating not to have all of their material available, this is a much better situation than many of us fans faced in the 90s, when the only way to hear this stuff was to find vinyl copies in the UK and have them shipped over. It's worth taking a listen, though. There's really some important and fun music to be enjoyed. Jukebox seems to be spitting out some cotton candy and glitter now, so we better let it cool off. We'll get back to my conversation with Ronnie Martin right after this quick break. Hey, this is Ray, and I'm a Patreon backer of the True Tunes podcast. I also follow and listen to the weekly Spotify gallery stage mixtape that John curates for us every week. And boy, is it eye-opening. Every week, usually on Wednesdays, the mix is updated and around 40 songs from brand new releases to deep cuts and from across a wide range of genres, including rock, Americana, indie, gospel, blues, sacred music, soul, and more. I've discovered tons of new songs and artists and have been reminded of things I love from long ago. It's also great to hear a mix that blends up great music that is just good, beautiful, and true. You can find the mix on the front page at truetunes.com or on the show notes page for this episode. And if you follow it, it will live there in your Spotify browser and update automatically every week. And don't miss the massive archive list, where all the previous lists get saved. It now features over 5,000 songs. And as great as Spotify is for music discovery, Please support the artists you love once you discover them. Thanks. You are, it seems, a man of many skills. A rare combination. True Tunes is on the road. I've been to Indiana, California, Tennessee, Iowa, and Illinois so far, and we are currently looking at opportunities around the country. These conversations have been a lot of fun, with me bringing a turntable and some records and a guitar, and often finding artists or other special guests to join me. I've also done songwriting workshops, music business clinics, and even some conversations about how we can slow ourselves down and listen to music more carefully, more thoughtfully, and yes, more spiritually. So, from auditoriums to small groups, there's kind of something for everyone. 
You can follow all of the action at truetunes.com slash events. And if you would be interested in having me come speak in your neck of the woods, drop me a line at jjt at truetunes.com and let me know. I'm also excited to be aligning with the Porchlight Network for house shows. Porchlight is a growing network of house show venues around the country, and you can learn more at porchlight.art. So, for house shows, look me up at Porchlight. For schools, venues, churches, or other opportunities, just connect with me directly. And hopefully, I'll be seeing you out there in person. Hey there, I'm Mark Feldbush from Columbus, Ohio. I'm a Patreon backer of the True Tunes podcast. I've also left a rating and review of the show at Apple Podcasts. It really wasn't that hard. It didn't cost me anything. But this show means a heck of a lot to me. And I know that reviews and ratings make a big difference when it comes to how and if others discover these conversations. Would you take a few minutes, maybe even while you're listening, if you're not driving, of course, to leave a rating and a review? Even if you don't listen on Apple Podcasts, the reviews posted there push out the podcast to platforms all around the world. Oh, and take some time to tell your friends about the show. Let's drive the numbers up together. Thanks. Okay, we're back with Ronnie Martin. In addition to all of this music, you decided you're going into the, you're going to be Pastor Ronnie. Like mm. you're going to actually become a pastor. So I would love to hear what was that initial call that you felt and uh, inspiration to, and then what has it taken? What have you had to do in order to, because you're, you're a pastor now, church planner. So I'd love to hear that story. Well, you know, it was, it was in the mid 2000s, early 2000s. And um, I, the Lord was just starting to work on my heart through some other pastors and men that were investing in me. I was coming out of a, just a long run with making records, being on the road quite a bit, and doing all those types of things. And I, and I knew that I was, I could sense that some of that was coming to an end for me because I wasn't enjoying it very much. But some of the circles that I was coming into, um, there were the pastors that kind of knew who I was based on the music, and they were they were interested in connecting with me. And again, not, not because of that, but just because they, they, you know, they cared about me and they wanted to make sure that I was, that I was doing okay. And that, you know, my relationship with the Lord was in a place of health and and spiritual vitality. And so it really was just a sense of, of men pastoring me and asking me some really critical questions, you know, about, you know, what I was doing with my life and, issues of idolatry and all of those things. So the Lord just started working on me through uh, through the effect of these really kind-hearted, compassionate men that were taking a risk by investing in my life. And I just received that. And, you know, like what happens to a lot of people that get into ministry, the path is, it's a windy road. And before I know it, I'm just, you know, I'm doing some music ministry and I'm, uh, and then before I know it, I'm on part-time staff at a large church and I'm uh, I'm over the entire, the entire music department, so I got I got a choir, I got an AV team, and I mean I was I'm doing stuff that I have no business doing, but the Lord was just just teaching me, and He was growing me and stretching me, and I and it was a very, it was just a it was just a really um, really interesting time in the early 2000s, 
And then, uh, so that was kind of how I got set on my path into ministry as I'm growing and I'm learning and um, all these things are happening, really generated around more like worship ministry than, than everything. But I, I, you know, I real I wasn't a great worship leader and I didn't have a, oddly enough, I, I wasn't good at it and I didn't have a big heart for it and a big passion for it. And I think the biggest catalyst in my life was in 2007, my dad died uh, suddenly of a heart aneurysm. And um, the Lord really used that in my life to, to just, I think, in a, in a, in a way, um, just make me realize what was important because I was still straddling both worlds at the time. And I think he used that moment to, I think, affirm my call in some ways. And then um, it was only, uh, you know, it was a few years after that that we relocated to Ohio for ministry. And then in the midst of that, I really felt that God was calling me to just uh, become a pastor and to to become a preacher and then eventually to plant a church. And so, again, I'm we would be here for hours, but that is the, uh, that's the Cliff Notes version of just getting into ministry, moving to Ohio, and then becoming a church planner, um, oddly enough, of all those things. You know, even right now, I'm finishing my third go around through seminary. And, what, yeah, uh, tell me about your seminary process. That, what is it? Yeah. What, to, what well, do you mean by third go around? You're getting your doctorate now. I'm getting my doctorate. Yeah, I'm almost almost finished with that. I'm. You know, it's ironic because I'm not really an academic at all, but I've had opportunities to just get you know to further my my learning and my education in those areas. So when I, so you know, you go back twelve to. 15 years was my first go around as I was getting into ministry. And then, you know, a few years later, um, graduated from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School out of Chicago with a, with, with a master's. And then, uh, yeah, a few years ago, I just stepped into, um, I had an opportunity to jump into a doctoral program out of Midwestern and um, out of Kansas City. And so I went into that and I'm right at the, right at the tail end of that. And, um, Oh man, it's been such an experience for me. I've learned a lot. It's also been very difficult for me because I'm at the end of the day, I, I am a pastor and a preacher, but I, I don't think like an academic. And so sitting down and writing papers and doing things on that level is incredibly difficult for me. I'm not very good at it. And um, so it, the, the Lord has taught me a lot through it, but it's not, it's not been the most enjoyable experience of my life. It's been a slog. Um, Can you think of something about seminary that <laughs> that you really were like, wow, I did not know that. I wasn't thinking about that. This has mm. really uh, shaped me and inspired me. Tell me the, one of the a story of something that may in seminary that you said, okay, I, this is this is changing my life. This is worth well, it. Yeah, I, and I think you know, I I certainly don't think every pastor needs seminary. I'm a firm believer in that. Um, I think what seminary taught me is process. Um, I'm not a very good process guy, so I I uh, I'm, I'm very experiential in how I learn, and that'll probably primarily be the way that I learn until I die. Um, but having had a few years in seminary and having that disciplined process that I that I have to fall under if I want to graduate, you know, I think that was just helpful for me in terms of seeing that there there are ways to learn, there are ways to 
to go about things that require a process that are going to be good for me and good for the people then that benefit from that, like my congregation. And so I, I think that was the biggest thing because I would be somebody that just says, oh, come on. The Lord calls people from different walks. He uses their experiences. He uses their whatever level of education they have. And he, he uses that, you know, for his glory, for the good of, of his people. And he does. And I totally believe that. Um, I think for me, I... I would have been, I would have leaned so far into that, that I think seminary just gave me some discipline. It taught me that there are, there are ways to go about things in a very organized way that can be of a massive benefit. And it also allows me to learn what I learn. And since I'm not a great systems guy, I can get people that are great systems guys and say, hey, check this out. If we could go this way and then do this and then go, go this direction, I think it would be beneficial. I'm just not the guy to put that together because I'm not great at that, but maybe you can because you eat that stuff for, you eat systems and organization for lunch. So it's been, it's been beneficial because I have a staff, it's been beneficial for that. Tell me about Substance Church, you know, the congregation. What's your church like? Is it is there a bunch of people like, uh, is it a Smith's concert? You know, a lot of new wave and a lot of... <laughs> No, no, it would be the opposite of that. I'm, um, uh, I, I don't like rock and roll churches too much, to be quite honest with you. So I, again, nothing against that. Um, it, it's actually, um, it's uh, fairly traditional. You know, uh, we're part of a denomination called the Evangelical Free Church of America. So um, just nothing that sticks out too much about it. You know, just kind of, we make a big deal out of expositional preaching and, um, you know, just sticking to the word and, uh just creating uh, an environment of grace, uh, truth, but compassionate, being compassionate pastors and, you know, understanding that people are coming in from all, all different walks of life. And um, we, uh, we gather in an old warehouse. So here's, here's a little the, I guess the, you know, the, the hipsterness that comes into it, right? We gather in an old warehouse because that's what was available to us. And uh, so we were able to, able to get this thing and fix it up and just create a, uh, you know, a fun space, a, a space that allows us to be, you know, a little artistic and creative without overdoing that. You know, that's not really the biggest motivator for any of this, um, but very, but very casual. Um, but really, I think at the end of the day, we just, you know, we would, we would say we're gospel centered and we, we want people to hear Jesus and the cross. And, um, you know, we talk about sin and we, we just hit all the, all the, you know, all the, the primary orthodoxy, I would say, you know, um, with everything that we do. And um, we're committed to community. So we're, uh, so our, really our values are, we say we're uh, gospel-centered, relationally driven, and God-glorifying. And that, that really does sum us up quite, quite a bit. We're really big on community. We hang out a lot. We eat a lot as a church. And we invite people in. And we, and we also, you know, go out into the community and and try to do some good. So that's what it's about, yeah.
how do you respond to the many young people and some not so young who are talking openly about their doubts, their yeah. frustrations with the organized church and all the rest and are rethinking their beliefs and their practices and how they're approaching it? How, how do you respond to that? Yeah, you're talking about deconstruction, which is... Well, yes. Yeah. I mean, but I try to avoid that word because that's okay. become such a buzz like it triggers people like some people it's very they're very comfortable with it this is what i'm doing i'm deconstructing others as soon as they hear that they think it's apostasy i think we're kind of always in the process of re-examining things and what i'm getting at some people are fully in that mode of saying i am deconstructing i'm tearing everything down Mm -hmm. to the studs and i'm going to maybe rebuild and maybe not other people though are are just concerned, worried, uh, turned off, frustrated. And then COVID had them at home for a long time and they're mm-hmm. going, maybe I'm not going back. I think for me, I want to, I want to listen and I want to try to understand somebody that is coming, you know, coming with a particular negative experience, whether it was with the church, whether it was with, you know, a, a Christian or somebody who claimed Christ and, you know, they, they were in a situation where they were mistreated or they were abused um, there's so many different, so many different situations and scenarios. So I think before anything, you know, I, I think, you know, to be able to step back and not, not hit the panic button and just go, Hey, why don't we, I'd love to listen to what it is that, that you've gone through and, and what you have to say. Um, the other thing I would say is that I don't think doubt is the enemy of faith. God uses our doubts to actually strengthen our faith. And I think Martin Luther said it best when he said, if I ever meet a Christian who says he never has any doubts, I doubt if he's actually an authentic Christian. I'm butchering that quote, but it's something of that nature. I think, you know, doubt and unbelief are, are two different things. And there's a, there's a, at times an, you know, a, an ambiguous tension between those things. What I always tell people is, hey, how, you know, you probably have some legitimate wounds, probably either from the church or from other Christians. And I always encourage them to not let that be a one-to-one reflection and correlation between who Jesus is and what their experience has been from somebody who reflected Jesus very poorly, because we see, you know, we see something very, very different there. And then try to bring them back to Scripture and what Scripture tells us about who Jesus is and how Jesus actually, in so many ways, you know, received the same mistreatment from people who you know, allegedly represented the church and represented religion and, and represented God, you know, he, you know, I mean, again, he was crucified by those people. And so we want to be careful to not think that they represent the character and the person of Jesus. Um, I'm always just trying to get back to, Hey, this Jesus person, you know, he's the one that actually doesn't let us down. His words are true. He has a track record of that. And I know that you know, you it might take years for you to work through some of the hurt and the pain that's been inflicted on you by the church. Um, but hey, you know, there, if you come into our church, there's a lot of people that have that same experience. Let's walk through that together. We don't want to just try to put a lid on it or deny it. Um, we want to also say, hey, that's legitimate. All the political stuff, the way segments of the church has has risen up in support of certain, how shall I say, political candidates. And conspiracy theories, you know, we would say, hey, um, we need to love the Lord with our minds as well as our hearts and our souls. And so let's have conversations about that. And let's make sure that, um, again, we're operating within the realm of the character of Jesus and the way that we the way that we interpret all these things. Um, It's been a really difficult two years, John. I mean, it's been it's been it's been really difficult for sure. 
One of the challenges I've, I've long felt is that when we are experiencing church and, and the body of Christ and walking this thing out, should that be a product-driven proposition where we say, well, you come to church and we give you a good product. We give you a good sermon. We give you some cool music, maybe now some drama, some video stuff. You go out, you you you're, you pay for it with your tithe and you get a product out of it. And that, you know, that has been the model most of my life for the mainstream evangelical world was we're going to make a better and better product to offer people and draw people so that we can fill up this former Best Buy or whatever it is. And I think you live by that sword and you die by that mm. sword. Well, you know, Matt, I love everything you just said. You know, we, we lost probably um, uh, 35% of our members, you know, over the last two years for a variety of reasons. Some of them didn't like our mask mandates. Um, some of them didn't like what we didn't say. You know, I don't do politics in the pulpit. So some of them think we should be a little more politically minded. Um, some people didn't like, you know, what we had to say about George Floyd um, when we felt like it was time to speak up about that, you know, hopefully very compassionately. And uh, so it was just a variety. It was it was a variety of, of things, you know. And I think what's interesting now is the people that are with us um, and again, the Lord's been bringing in a, a lot of new people. The spirit of, you know, the core of who encompasses our church, we're not all going to line up uh, politically, and that's totally okay. You know, we're not all going to line up on every point of doctrine. That's not what it's about. You don't have to have a particular eschatological position to be a member of our church. But it's like, what are, what are we doing? How, how do we unify a, around the essentials? you know, of the Christian faith. And that is really what we what we talk about more than anything else, you know. Are we walking in the ways of Jesus? Is there grace? Is there truth? You know, I mean, you know, we have particular convictions, we have particular distinctions that we, that we try to live out. Um, but are we doing it in a unified way? Are we doing it in a way that is inviting to our neighbors um, instead of put, pushing ourselves into a, a corner that creates a particular kind of exclusivity that I don't think Christ calls for. There, there are some aspects of Christianity that, that are exclusive, you know, we believe that. But there, there are other ways that it isn't, and we want to make sure that we have, it, 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 the, to the best of our ability and imperfectly, you know, we're trying to represent those, those two aspects of it. And so I think what it's done for the leadership of our church, it's educated us in a lot of ways. We can hold things in balance and in common. You know, it's it's okay for you to have this position, um, as long as we're compassionate 
about the way that we communicated to others. And as long as that we're okay with all of us coexisting in a space that says that is not that is not the biggest thing about what makes us who we are, you know, that doesn't define us. So who you vote for in November, it shouldn't be a defining thing for you. You're going to have particular convictions about who you vote for. I'm going to have different convictions. I want to be able to exist with you in a in a God-honoring, peaceful place and maybe even have some rigorous debates. But at the end of that, there's there's hugging and there's prayer and there is love and, and we can we can be on mission together. What do you think music is good for? What can it accomplish in any meaningful way in someone's heart and mind? Man, that is such a great question. Um, I guess I can speak for myself in that it creates a sense of joy that reflects, I think, the joy of Christ. I think it, re- I think it creates a, um, an aspect of reflectiveness and contemplativeness because it puts my mind and my heart in a place where I start thinking of, you know, um, I start thinking of deeper things. So when I hear melodies and music and beats, it puts me in a place where I can, I can um, start thinking of the deeper things of God even. And, and that produces some sobriety. It produces a sense of joy. And I think it, uh, it opens my mind up to just a fuller orbed picture of how great God is and how artistic God is and that he's a creator. And I need something in my life that helps me do that. Um, And music is one of those things as I've matured um, that helps me, I think gets me into that space. Has your experience in music or art in general impacted or informed the way you understand worship and the spiritual formation that we all need to experience? I think so because, you know, there's a reason why we start our services with singing and with music and why it has such a big part of our liturgy and what we do. Um, I think it's the, it's sort of the, uh, how do I phrase it? It's music really is the, um, it's kind of the oil in our bones, right? It's, it's that, it's that thing that, um, you know, we're, we're, we're meant to have knowledge um, but we're also meant to uh, to be joyful people, you know, and I think and, you know, again, you know, God, God's word produces a joy as well. But I think music helps bring a, a particular kind of joy into the mix and how we are to understand Christ's work in the heart, in the hearts of people, you know, and in our heart. And so, yeah, I think it's I think it's a massive thing. Yeah, it's helped me quite a bit. It's just fun to to see how well you're doing after all these years, you know, and a, a lot of our friends um, have not been able to find a way to keep making music at yeah, all. Yeah. And a lot of friends are really torn up and despondent yeah. on a spiritual, cultural level. And yeah. I just, I appreciate that you are so invested in serving people. Mm. And then I, I feel like the heart of that comes out in the music. It really, wow, thanks so much. really does. That's really if somebody out there is going, man, I, I would like to go to Ronnie's church, but I don't live in Ohio. Do you stream your teaching? Like, can people log in and listen to stuff? Yeah, we uh, the, the, 
we're not we're not doing live streams anymore. We stopped that after you know COVID kind of allowed us to gather again. But we uh, all the the sermons are posted online every Sunday, so you can go to substance-church.org and you can find find all the sermons. Yeah. Cool, man. Thanks for thanks for being Thank with you. us today. This is a lot of fun, man. You got it. Thank you, brother. Thanks so much, Ronnie. We'll link to some places you can find Ronnie's music on the show notes page, so don't miss that. As I pull out my soapbox here, I'm thinking about how and why people of faith engage the arts. There's a constant struggle between art and commerce, and discerning that elusive line between art and mere decoration, or even propaganda, is a challenge. Knowing who the audience is for your art without reducing what you do to mere product is another. The definitions are liquid and subject to intangible ideas about taste and style. One person's art is another person's noise, but when spirituality and faith get added into the mix, things often get really messy. It seems to me that there are really a list of questions and answers, or at least suggestions, that will impact how the artist works, who they promote their work to, and what the intended effects are. Maybe it was the lack of a Christian market that inspired artists like Steve Fairney, Bev Sage, Steve Scott, and others to lead with their creativity and allow their spirituality to inform their work authentically. Whereas US artists faced more pressure to produce product for the Christian community to consume. But when I listen to Ronnie Martin's clearly biblically informed music from his latest all the way back to the earliest Joy Electric stuff, it seems that it can be possible to craft spiritual art with integrity, even within the U.S. marketplace and all of its culture-warring weirdness. It's kind of like the synthesizers themselves. In the hands of a skilled and imaginative artist, keyboards present near-infinite opportunities for expression and experimentation. In lesser hands, however, they make music sound cheap, canned, and boring. In his review of the new Tears for Fears album for True Tunes, Dan Hasseltine of Jars of Clay observed, quote, There are many young bands swimming in pools of retro sounds from the 80s, but lacking the musicality of that era, end quote. So, if you're an artist, think about these things as you step up to whatever your easel may be. Are you pushing something new and beautiful into the world or merely decorating? Are you working to layer the sounds, feel the emotions, and say something? Or are you trying to move product? And if, as a fan, you find yourself more on the consuming side of the equation, make sure you're supporting the artists who make the world more beautiful. They need your help and your patronage if they are going to be able to keep producing. And once we're all gathered in the garden for our jam session, let's make room for the keyboards. There's something special about hearing a human being coax beauty and grace from a machine. All right, I'm climbing off my soapbox now.
That's going to do it for this episode of the podcast. Make sure to check out the show notes page for the list of songs you heard here. Thanks to Ronnie Martin for his time and generosity and to Randy Layton and Steve Scott. Thanks also to the late great Steve Fairney for inspiring me at a young age to think big about my art and to never stop looking for ways to push back the darkness. Love to Steve's family, Bev and the kids, and peace to all the pioneers. Of course, this show would be awfully quiet without the help of my co-producer, engineer, and sounding board, Bruce A. Brown. Thank you, sir. Thanks also to Phil Keggy and Rex Paul for the special version of Full Circle that they allow us to use as our theme song. Please give us a review and a rating at Apple Podcast and tell your friends about the show. Find and follow our weekly Spotify mix. Sign up on our email list. We've got some amazing stuff in store. The contents of this podcast are protected by U.S. copyright law and are the intellectual property of Gyroscope Productions, with the exception of songs or clips that are from previously copywritten materials. Everything on this episode is used by permission or under fair use provisions. This program is intended for the private use of our listening audience. Gyroscope Productions can be reached at jjt at truetunes.com or P.O. Box 60401, Nashville, Tennessee, 37206. Until next time, this is JJT reminding you to plug your keyboard into the bass amp, not the guitar amp. You don't want to find out what those low notes can do to your speaker cone. I promise you that. Peace. Dr. Kiefer, Mrs. Arnie. You've both been most helpful in answering these questions concerning cats and cat care. I'm sure I've learned a lot, and I'm sure the owners of cats who've been listening have learned much, too. Well, thank oh, you. We've enjoyed it. Goodbye, folks. <laughs>